Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to The World in 10, the Times of London's unique take on world events every day. I'm Alex Dibble and I'm here with Cara Bentley. Hello and today we're going to be looking at Glastonbury with The Times' take on it, plus hearing about the fears in Tokyo as a record number of people prepare to climb Mount Fuji. But the reason why you can hear we're already in the office is because we're going to dive straight in, because uh, the Times app, the Times website, has been running a QA and a uh, on the situation in Russia where readers have been sending in their questions and they've been answered by our man in Ukraine, Mark Bennett, but also by Roger Boys, the Times' diplomatic correspondent and also a former Moscow correspondent. And Roger is with us now. We're very grateful for your time. And you've been answering questions that have come in from Times listeners, including this one from Doreen Rees. She says, was this march on Moscow by just 25,000 mercenaries real or a stage facade for some reason? The National Guard of Russia, she says, alone has some 300,000 troops. What could Prigozhin have possibly hoped to achieve? I smell a rat, but am I wrong too? Uh, Yes, I thought this was a really bright question. Um, I smelt rats too. But the task of the the march on Moscow was, in a way, just to make a cry for attention by Prigozhin. But there is a theory circulating in in Moscow that that a deal was struck already uh, between Prigozhin and Putin and that he was going to use this march, which he would never let really get close to Moscow, as an excuse for purging the army, which is something he wanted to do, and he needed popular legitimacy to do that. Uh, Stalin did the same thing in 1930s, um, and I think that that's what, what could have been behind it. And you've had this question in from Anne. There are apparently rumours that Prigozhin's exile in Belarus is in fact to form a Wagner group there and then send that group to Ukraine to support Russian troops. This way, it is claimed both Belarus and Prigozhin will be able to say that it's nothing to do with them, except that someone somewhere has let the cat out of the bag. What's your response to Anne? Well, after rats, cats, right? Uh, no, it was um, uh, it was another interesting question, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that Wagner would somehow be in the vanguard of an attack, uh, a new attack from Belarus into, for example, into Kiev. You know, Kiev is very close to the Belarusian border, so it's feasible just about. But I don't think Putin's army is is ready to open a new front at the moment. They're already very stretched. They're very confused by what's been happening with the Wagner Group and it would require a complete rethink of the way the war is being fought. So I don't think that's going to happen. But if I were Lukashenko, that's to say the head of um, 
the head of Belarus, I would be worried by having a big group of Wagner people in my country because they're, they're experts in changing regimes and I would be nervous about having them around. And then uh, maybe finally this, this question was another interesting one. If the regime declines, the Russian regime, if the regime declines and changes, what are the likely consequences for the war in Ukraine and Russia's threat to the West more generally? I suppose this is if Putin is no longer the leader. Yes, I, I mean, everyone wonders what, what would happen if Putin went tomorrow or in a year's time and whether the war would end. Um, and traditionally, that's what does happen when there is a political overthrow and an unsuccessful war. There is a popular demand that the new government closes down the war. But, but the new government, whoever it is, first of all, they might be ultra-nationalists themselves, and they will have to deal with a lot of very frustrated generals, and uh, they will have huge economic problems to deal with. So... So my bet is new government, new regime, war ends, perhaps not on the terms that Ukraine wants, and then they draw closer to China. And uh, that doesn't make anybody happy. Roger, thank you very much indeed for your time. Uh, That's really, really helpful. Um, I suppose one question to come out of all this is how are Ukrainians responding? And on that point, uh, Times Radio today have been hearing from Vladimir Zelensky's defence advisor, who is a man called Yuri Sak. We will persevere. We will continue what we're doing. Uh, You know, during the month of June, uh, we have inflicted, for example, in terms of military equipment, we have inflicted the record number of losses on the Russians. During the last 24 hours, we have killed almost 1,000 Russian soldiers on our land. And, you know, of course, these internal charades uh, in Russia. And look, I will just have to stress that for us, for Ukrainians, every participant of these uh, so-called mutinies, uh, they're all terrorists and war criminals to us. So the weaker they are, the stronger it makes us and the closer it brings us to our victory. Now, The Times' senior foreign correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, has written a piece uh, which is about how this has all been from Ukrainian soldiers' point of view for the last few days. And one of them told him today the war feels just like how it was three days ago. And you can read that piece by taking out a digital subscription. Authorities in Japan have warned that people could die over the next few weeks and months climbing Mount Fuji. Now, more than 300,000 people are expected to climb it within a two-month period within which it is open for climbing. And the reason why this number is so high is because people couldn't climb during COVID. So there is Mm. this humongous backlog. And normally people kind of go in these sleeping huts or these rest huts, which they just stop at spontaneously on the way. But this year, they've all been booked up in advance. The Times' Asia editor, Richard Lloyd Parry, is in Tokyo under the shadow of Fuji. And he told us that the worry is about so-called bullet climbs. The normal way of climbing out Fuji is that people like to be on the summit when the sun rises. You get to the top just in the last hour of dark. And then you watch the sunrise, you know, on this high point. And of course, it's spectacular, absolutely magnificent on a clear day. Uh, and what people normally do is they, they start sort of the evening, the night before. Uh, and when they're almost, then when they're most of the way up, 
they take a, a rest in one of these mountain huts and then having done that push on to the top and then come back down but because the mountain huts are booked out the fear is that people will do it all in one go which is not impossible but the fear is that people doing that will get tired they'll make mistakes uh, and they'll be more likely to have falls or nasty things happening and what to come to hypothermia on the top or something like that there is a great deal of nervousness as the season is poised to open That was, of course, Elton John performing in his gold suit and (laughs) sunglasses. But now that piece of land in rural Somerset is on its way to returning to just another ordinary field as the litter pickers collect bottles and the sets get pulled down. Mm. Uh, Well, two Times journalists were at Glastonbury uh, this year and they've spoken about, uh, on the Times app, they've spoken about the 11 things they learned, um, including a controversial statement that the artist Lizzo uh, reigned over, they say, Um, they she was better than uh, what they call the pale, male and stale performers. Yeah, they write, there's a slightly blokey and geriatric whiff to much of Glastonbury's charm, which has, as you can Mm. expect, not gone down well with the fans, with the many who thought that those older male stars performed fantastically. Now, Lisa Verico, who also writes for The Times, she told us that Glastonbury is not so much the place anymore to discover a new indie band. We're all listening to lots more heritage acts than we used to. I think Glastonbury's got very old age of audience. It's very, very middle class now. If you want to see new bands, you'd go to Reading. Obviously, there's hundreds of, of artists at, at Glastonbury. And you go to a smaller stage and you'll see new acts. And you know, lots of people go and they just they don't go to the pyramid stage. I mean, I thought Elton's voice held up very well. The thing with Elton John is he has a very, because of the Rocketman film and the autobiography and because of this radio show and he's very involved with new artists. I mean, he was instrumental in Ed Sheeran's career, for example. So he is known to younger people. So I think he's a bit of an exception. But yeah, there's a lot of heritage acts at Glastonbury now. It really, I mean, it made the Arctic monkeys look like teenagers. There is just about time for me to point you in the direction of a piece on the Times sports section. The Times reporting on comments by the men's tennis world number one, Carlos Alcaraz, that he has no doubts he will play in Saudi Arabia in the future. They've come for Formula One, they've come for golf, they've come for football. Now it seems they are coming for tennis and soon. That's it for today. The World in 10 is back tomorrow. We will see you then. (laughs) 